0: Continuing on with uh, chapter 15, which is shock and resuscitation. Last class, we talked about the different types of shocks, categories of shocks, specific types of shocks as well. Now, moving on, we're going to talk about the body's response to shock. So your body's, the body's attempt to compensate to return perfusion to normal. So again, your body is going to try to correct itself when issues arise. Body's not getting enough oxygen to the cells. The body's going to recognize that and it's going to take actions to try to correct that oxygenation and overall perfusion as well. The body's response to the shock, main thing it's going to do is it's going to release hormones. It's going to activate uh, the sympathetic nervous system. So it's going to release epinephrine, norepinephrine. So many of the signs and symptoms of shock that we see is actually because of the release of those hormones. So the the signs and symptoms, what we're looking for to help us to determine shock are related to the compensatory mechanisms of the body. Sympathetic nervous system stimulation and the release of hormones are the two major compensatory mechanisms. Again, your body realizes it's in trouble. It's going to start taking actions to try to correct itself, to maintain that homeostasis, the normal. So, one thing it's going to do is going to have the direct nerve stimulation. Sympathetic nervous stimulation is going to be immediate. So, what's going to happen? We're going to have an increase in heart rate. So, we're going to see a, a vital sign for shock is going to be tachycardia. Also, an increase in the force of ventricular contractions. The heart is actually going to be beating more strongly with each beat as well. Vasoconstriction, blood vessels are going to try to constrict, get smaller. And stimulation of the release of epinephrine and norepinephrine from the adrenal gland. Again, your body's trying to protect itself. It's trying to restore perfusion back to normal. So body realizes, hey, I'm not getting enough oxygen and And glucose, these essential nutrients. So, it's going to try to get more oxygen and glucose to the cells. So, what it's going to do, it's going to try to circulate more oxygen. So, it's going to speed up that heart rate, try to get more oxygen to the cells. Again, increase the force of ventricular contraction. It's going to make that heartbeat stronger to ensure that more oxygen is able to circulate. Vasoconstriction as well is going to constrict those blood vessels, it's going to try to increase blood pressure to try to ensure that those cells are getting perfused. Respiratory rate is also going to speed up as well. So patients are likely gonna be breathing faster than normal as well, again, trying to draw more oxygen into the lungs. The body's not able to pinpoint the true specific cause because with that epinephrine, it's not gonna pinpoint, okay, well, it's a breathing problem. So I'm just gonna speed up respirations. Body can't do it, it can't be that specific. So by the release of those hormones, it's going to pick up everything. All the factors that come to getting oxygen to the cells, it's going to try to speed those up, make those work better. So the release of the hormones, the effects of the hormones are more sustained. So we get that direct nerve stimulation, but it's going to be relatively short acting. The main thing when that sympathetic nervous system is activated, what's going to occur is the release of the hormones. The hormones get released. Now we're getting those same things that we've talked about, but they're going to be more sustained, long-lasting. Epinephrine has the effects that causes vasoconstriction, so the blood vessels are going to constrict. Trying to increase cardiac output. Again, trying to make sure those cells are getting as good of circulation as possible. epinephrine, the main thing that nori- epinephrine is going to do is causes vasoconstriction.
1: Other hormones are getting released as well.
0: Some of these other hormones are going to do things like they're going to decrease urine output. So it's going to make the body maintain and hold on to the fluid that it does have. And hormones are also releasing that's going to try to increase and drive glucose as well.
1: So again, those effects on the hormone.
0: Uh, Epinephrine has beta response, alpha responses as well, so beta 1, tachycardia, beta 1's increased contractility of the heart, vasoconstriction is alpha response, clammy skin, sweat gland stimulation, decreased insulin secretion, and that's going to be the main thing, the conversion of stored glucose in the liver to uh, glycogen, in the liver to blood glucose. So again, some of the signs and symptoms we're going to see on a patient with shock, again, a lot of it is going to be directly related to these hormone releases. So the tachycardia that we see, pale, cool, clammy skin, pupillary dilation, pale, cool, sling, clammy skin,
1: tachycardia. Again,
0: vasopressin is going to decrease your output. Vasoconstriction, again, is going to try to drive and increase blood pressure, angiotensin, or tension, glucagon, so forth as well. Again, the main hormone that's getting released that's doing the most for the body during shock is going to be epinephrine, nor epinephrine right behind it. So there's different stages of shock as well. So through the compensatory measures, the body continuously attempts to compensate or to overcome, to fix itself for the shock. So however, if the conditions continue to get worse, the body will not be able to keep up, compensate adequately. So we, we're looking at the patient, we're looking at bottle signs, and we're trying to determine what type of shock stage of shock that they're in. We're trying to determine, are they in compensated shock or compensatory shock, meaning they're able to try to maintain relatively normal homeostasis in the body, or are they in decompensated shock where the body cannot keep up and now the patient is starting to fail. So compensatory shock, again, your body is able to compensate for what is going on. So the body is able to maintain near normal blood pressure and perfusion to the vital organs. So remember, we talked about what is the, the, the best reliable vital sign that we have in the body uh, in order to determine perfusion is going to be the patient's blood pressure. So if the patient is able to maintain a normal blood pressure, that's telling us that the vital organs are getting perfused. So, the patient is compensating for what's going on with them, whatever ca- is causing that shock. At, at, during this, blood is going to be shunted away from non-vital areas such as the skin, GI tract, all going to make sure that those vital, life-sustaining organs are getting perf- uh, perfused.
1: During this time as well, we may also see in those pulse pressures starting to narrow as well.
0: So again, compensated shock, we're getting a normal or close to normal blood pressure on the patient. The brain is getting perfused, so we're not having things like decreased level of consciousness, etc. cetera. In decompensated shock, compensatory mechanisms are overwhelmed, so the body cannot keep up with what's going on with them, so now the patient is starting to deteriorate body can no longer maintain blood pressure and perfusion to the vital organs. And it's in decompensated shock when the patient moves from aerobic metabolism into anaerobic metabolism. Again, we're not getting adequate perfusion to the vital organs, so those vital organs begin to fail, leading to MODS, which is multiple
1: organ dysfunction syndrome.
0: the stage in which multiple organs begin to fail throughout the body from extreme prolonged hypoxia, altered metabolism, elevated carbon dioxide, and acid levels in the body. And once we get to MODS, it can be referred to as irreversible shock, means the patient's about to code on it. So the main thing that we look at for us to determine if a patient is in compensated shock or decompensated shock, there's two things that we look at. The biggest thing is the blood pressure. So as long as the patient's blood pressure is normal or close to normal, not hypotensive anyway, then we're going to assume that the patient is in compensated shock. If it's beginning to fall, drop, it's hypotensive. Now they're moving into decompensated shock. The other thing that we look at is brain perfusion, so level of consciousness. Patients alert, they are probably compensated. If they are unresponsive, definitely going to be in decompensated shock. So, again, those are the two things that we look at blood pressure
1: and mental status.
0: So, during our assessment, trying to determine if a patient's in shock. If a patient's in shock, the signs may be subtle or extremely profound. Regardless of how that presentation is, if the patient is in shock, we have to be able to recognize it and start treatment of it quickly. So we may have somebody that's just in the early stages of shock compensating very well for the shock. But again, we have to be able to recognize that they are possibly in shock. So during our assessment, trying to determine is this patient in shock, consider history findings, physical assessment findings, signs of perfusion, disturbances, and bottle signs. Make sure we do a good thorough assessment. And again, just like everything else we've kind of talked about, don't rely on a single sign or symptom or bottle, even a single bottle sign for that matter. Make sure that we are looking at the patient as a whole before we come up with our field diagnosis, what we think is wrong with the patient. So assessing the patient's history, make sure that we obtain that chief complaint. What's going on with the patient? Why did they call for an ambulance today? Get your sample history, full sample history. Paying close attention to things like the medications that the patient is is taking. Certain medications like beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, can alter the response to shock. Beta blockers, especially. Beta blockers is a drug that's used for high blood pressure. How it works is, or one of the ways it works, is it actually slows the patient's heart rate down. So we've already talked about normal response to shock, the heart rate is going to elevate because of the release of epinephrine. Well, if that patient's taking beta blockers, the heart rate's probably not going to get elevated like it would if a patient wasn't on beta blockers. Those, the medication is going to prevent that heart rate from increase. So these medications can mask or alter the signs and symptoms of shock. Also remember that increased heart rate is a compensatory mechanism. It's how your body's trying to correct itself. So if a patient's taking beta blockers, What type of effect is that having on those compensatory mechanisms? Well, it's altering them, so it may cause that patient to move from compensated to decompensated shock much quicker. Other items like if the patient has a pacemaker, that pacemaker may also prevent the heart rate from increasing, uh, elevating as well. So again, these are just things that we need to think about, ask these questions when we're assessing for a patient that we suspect is in shock. Physical exam. Bottle signs again can, can appear relatively normal in compensated shock, especially very early on in that shock response. So look for signs and symptoms of other, uh, of poor perfusion. Things like restlessness and anxiety. If epinephrine is getting released, restlessness and anxiety is going to be a normal response. That's that the uh, epinephrine release is going to cause that and the body realizes hey something is not right so that's normally a very early sign that something is wrong with the body as the patient is extremely restless and having some anxiety skin condition maybe give us a clue as well again as that blood is getting shunted away from the skin and we're getting vasodilation we're going to start seeing the full clammy diaphoretic skin it's going to start sweating heart rate and strength. Again, with that epinephrine release, early response to shock is going to be an elevated heart rate. So the the heart rate is going to start getting faster, faster. It's going to start getting over 100. We refer to it as being tachycardic. So that's one thing that we look at for a tachycardic patient. Again, the body is shunning blood to the vital organs as well. So the distal pulses, the radius, the pedal pulses may start feeling weak as well. And as that blood pressure drops, they may lose distal pulses. And that falling blood pressure, again, but that is a late sign. Again, that's what marks the patient has moved from compensated to decompensated shock is that falling blood pressure. For trauma assessments, et cetera, again, maintain that high index of suspicion based on that mechanism of injury. To help us determine or or suspect whether we think the patient could possibly be suffering from shock
1: or not. So
0: physical assessment indicators of hypovolemic shock. And Alex, what causes hypovolemic shock?
1: Alex, do you know? Oh, sorry, you'd broken up uh, a little bit. I didn't hear my name. <laughs> what causes hypoids and job? Uh I can't remember, honestly. Somebody help him out. Is, is, it, uh, is it due to
0: loss of blood? not necessarily whole blood, but it's loss of volume. So bleeding, loss of whole blood is one of them, but we can also have non-hemorrhagic hypovolemic, which is just the loss of plasma. So this is a fluid problem in the body. So the signs and symptoms that we're going to see of this, and you'll start noticing patterns in most of these types of shock. Vital signs, we're going to start having Low blood pressure. Again, all forms of shock at some point are going to lead to low blood pressure because blood pressure is the best tool we have to determine perfusion. Narrowing pulse pressures. Right here, we're going to have tachycardia, rapid heart rate over 100. Tachypnea, fast breathing rate. Full, clammy skin. Unattainable or poor SpO2 sat readings. Oftentimes that is caused by we're not getting good circulation to the extremities. And remember, a pulse ox does require pulsating blood. Anxiety, again, that's often the first indication that something's going on. Progression to a decreased mental status, pale, cool, clammy skin, delayed capillary refill, weak or absent peripheral pulses, again, especially as that blood pressure begins to drop, and a decrease in urine output. Now, us in the pre-hospital setting, we don't worry too much about asking you about urine output unless we suspect a urinary uh, concern. But again, tachycardia, tachypnea, pale, cool, clammy skin, and at some point, a falling blood pressure as well.
1: Cardiogenic shock. Cassidy, what's causing, what's the cause of cardiogenic shock? What's failing in this case? something with the heart exactly
0: right this is pump failure something is going on with the heart where the heart is not beating effectively so again some of the signs and symptoms falling blood pressure again indication of decompensated shock narrowing pulse pressures tachycardia or bradycardia may be irregular typically though it's still going to be tachycardia tachypnea fast rapid breathing pale cool clammy skin We can also get cyanosis or mottled skin, anxiety, pale, cool, clammy skin, or mottled skin. So you'll notice a lot of these indications, especially on the bottle sign sign, are gonna be pretty similar to that of hypovolemic shock, right? Tachycardia, tachypnea, diaphoretic skin. Some things that's gonna make it unique. We can get jugular vein distension, where those neck veins are sticking out, or pedal edema, depending on what side of the heart is failing. Weak or absent peripheral pulses. Uh, sorry, if it's we're getting JVD or pedal edema, that is uh, right-sided failure. Crackles or those wet-sounding lung sounds if it is left-sided heart failure. So that's kind of what makes cardiogenic shock unique. A unique bottle sign for it is when we listen to lung sounds, we're going to hear crackles or rails in lungs. Again, those patients probably going to have a cardiac history or have just recently had a heart attack as well.
1: Distributive shock. Cassie, what causes distributive shock? Um... Uh, like a reduction in the vascular resistance.
0: Okay. Which, translate that for me who doesn't know what the hell you're talking about. So, okay, <laughs> I'm not in the medical field. <laughs> um, it
1: what distributes your blood to the body, the rest of the body, from your heart to the body? What carries blood from, the, from your heart to the rest of your body? Your um, arteries. Okay,
0: so with that's distribute that's what just di- that's what distributes it. So with distributive shock, the problem is with the blood vessels. Blood vessels are dilating, so we're getting just massive vasodilation throughout the entire body. You were right with your first statement. I just wanted it simpler f- for me to understand.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So again, some of the vital signs that we're going to get: decreasing blood pressure,
1: tachycardia cichipnia, uh,
0: diaphoretic skin, mottled skin as well. So again, a lot of those vital signs, especially heart rate, respiratory rate, and eventually blood pressure, are all going to be similar for the forms of shock, with one exception, and we'll talk about that coming up. Again, now when we get into distributive shock, there's different causes of distributive shock. If it's anaphylactic reaction, we're gonna have things like hives, urticaria. Uh, we're gonna have edema or swelling, typically in, a lot in the face, angioedema, tongue, mouth, face, etc. cetera. If it is septic shock, that often is accompanied with a fever. So the skin may be flushed, It may be hot to the touch as well. So again, with distributive shock, again, the clues about what else we see on the body as well as those vital signs may give us an indication of what actually is causing that type of distributive shock. Nathan, go ahead. Um, vasodilation is when the arteries and or arteries get bigger, right? Yeah, they dilate. Blood vessels and then, dilate. Yeah. Okay. And then so con- vasoconstriction is when they get smaller as Correct. well? Correct. Yes.
1: Okay. Thank you.
0: So, especially with distributive shock, remember, we talked about epinephrine getting released. We talked about norepinephrine getting released. What are those going to do to blood vessels? Well, they're going to constrict them to try to increase and drop blood pressure. It's when the epinephrine can't combat what else is going on, so it can't keep up with it, is when we start getting those falling blood pressures, et cetera. The sepsis, the anaphylactic reaction, is just more than the epinephrine released by the body can handle. So obstructive shock, Howard, what causes obstructive shock?
1: Obstruction in the blood flow.
0: Very good. Do you remember what the three items or three conditions that causes obstructive shock?
1: Uh, I know three ones that it's it causes. I didn't write anything else down, okay. though.
0: So the three conditions that causes obstructive shock are pericardial tamponade, pulmonary embolism, and uh, tension pneumothorax. So what we're going to see bottle signs-wise, narrowing pulse pressures, tachycardia, tachypnea, pale cool skin. So again, bottle sign wise, basically going to be the same, falling blood pressure at some point. Again, now we're trying to determine or whatever that cause is may alter some presentations as well. So for pericardial tamponade, tension pneumothoraxes, we may get JVD because the heart's not able to fill up with blood adequately. So blood's starting to back up in the body. Uh, uh, tension pneumothorax, we're going to get that tracheal deviation away from the injured side. That trachea is not going to be in the center of the throat. We're also going to get absent lung sounds on one side of the body. For pericardial tamponade, we can get muffled heart sounds if we listen
1: to heart sounds with our stethoscope as well. Also need to keep in mind, there if
0: we're dealing with extremes of age, That's also going to affect how they respond to shock as well. So age may influence the development, presentation, management, and recovery from shock. So as a general rule, kiddos, children compensate very well for shock. They can maintain almost a normal blood pressure for pretty easily for a while anyway. But once they start decompensating, once that blood pressure does start falling, it's going to, they're going to fall very quickly and they're going to crash very quickly. So kids can go from looking fairly stable to unresponsive, barely breathing, very low, unattainable blood pressure, extremely, extremely quickly. Geriatric patients, on the other hand, They don't compensate well at all. So, after the onset of shock, their body's not going to be able to compensate. So, they're going to start, they're going to move from compensated to decompensated shock extremely quickly. So, some general goals for us to keep in mind of pre hospital management of shock. How are we going to treat shock? So, again, shock is poor perfusion, oxygen, essential nutrients getting to the cells. So we can, we're going to do what we can. Most cases, a lot of cases, there's not a lot we're going to be able to do for shock. But we do need to make sure our ABCs are good. That's going to ensure that the patient is at least getting enough oxygen into the body. So make sure that the airway is open and maintains patent. Make sure the patient is breathing adequately on their own. If they're not breathing adequately for rate and or for tidal volume, we're going to ventilate the patient with the BBM are going to establish and maintain adequate oxygenation. And shock, hypoperfusion are one of those conditions where we do not care about O2 sats. If they're showing signs and symptoms of shock, they're going to get placed on O2. We don't want to hyperventilate the shock patient. If the patient is, if we are having to assist their ventilations or to breathe for them, make sure that we are paying very close attention to our rate. We do not want to hyperventilate. If there is any external bleeding, take immediate action
1: to stop the bleeding.
0: If they do have fractures, we can splint those fractures. But again, especially for, uh, if we're talking about trauma, if it's a critical trauma, and if they're showing signs symptoms of shock, that's a critical trauma. We don't want to delay transport to splint non-life-threatening fractures. If the patient has an impelled object, so they got stabbed in the chest and the knife is still in the chest, etc., we do not ever remove, with one exception, remove impelled objects. That, can, that impelled object may be acting to help actually control the bleeding at that time. And if we pull that knife out, for example, now they may start bleeding very heavily. So as a general rule, we do not remove impelled objects. We leave them in place. So just secure it in place and move on. Something that is very important but is often easily overlooked when we're dealing with shock victims is we have to take steps to control their body temperature. We do not want them to get hypothermic or drop their core temperature. And their skin's already going to be diaphoretic, so they're already going to be prone to losing temp. So something as simple as covering the patient with a blanket can make a big difference in patient outcomes. So shock victims, cover them with a blanket. We want to keep the patient supine or even put them in a shock position with the feet slightly elevated. We don't want to sit them up because if their blood pressure is already dropping, the heart is going to have to work that much harder against gravity to ensure that the brain is getting perfused. So with shock victims, they either need to be completely supine or shock position with the feet elevated. We can apply the PASG according to local protocols. PASG is typically not used anymore. I don't know of any services that are carrying them. PASG stands for pneumatic anti-shock garment. And again, they used to be the best thing in the world until science and research showed that they actually suck and was causing more damage than good. So we do not, in this region, do not use the PASG. Rapid transport to the hospital, again, especially traumas, it's automatically considered a critical trauma if they're showing signs and symptoms of shock, 10 minutes or unseen or less. And consider ALS intercept, but again, weighing that risk versus reward. The ultimate goal for major uh, trauma, again, what they need in most cases in order to survive major traumas is going to be surgical intervention. So that should be our focus is to get them to the hospital as quickly as possible. So the review
1: of vital signs for shock. So
0: with most forms of shock, what we are going to see, elevated heart rate, diaphoretic skin. Now, there is some exceptions. Septic shock is going to be running a fever. Anaphylactic shock is going to probably be flushed with hives, uh, facial edema, and low blood pressure. But again, that low blood pressure is a late sign. Now neurogenic shock and we've talked a little bit about neurogenic shock. Neurogenic shock is the shock that has a very unique presentation compared to the other forms of shock. So with neurogenic shock again, neurogenic shock is caused by a spinal injury. That spinal injury, significant spinal injury is preventing the brain communicating to the rest of the body for the release of that epinephrine, the use of that epinephrine as well. So if epinephrine is not getting released, we're not going to see things like the rapid heart rate. And in fact, with neurogenic shock, we tend to see a slower than normal heart rate. And we get weird skin signs as well. Diaphoretic skin above the injured site, warm and dry skin below the injured site. And again, still a form of shock, so we still get that low blood pressure. Again, that is the indication that it's moving from compensated to decompensated shock. Make sure that you understand the vital signs for shock. Several questions on the tests are going to be, they're not going to say the patient's in shock. We're going to give you a scenario or I'm going to give you a scenario. You have to make that determination. Hey, this patient's in shock and then base your treatment on that. uh, that. Okay, so that was shock. Now we're moving on to resuscitation in cardiac arrest. Resuscitation means bringing a patient back from potential or apparent death. And resuscitation focuses on the management of the airway, ventilations, oxygenation, and restoring adequate circulation. And we're going to fall back on with CPR, patient and cardiac arrest, we are going to fall back on the American Heart Association guidelines. So cardiac arrest occurs when the ventricles of the heart do not are not contracting or cardiac output is ineffective and no pulse can be felt. So again, that's what cardiac arrest is. Patient's heart has stopped. We can't feel any pulse on the patient. So oxygen blood's not circulating throughout the body. So we're starving and depriving the brain of oxygen. And those brain cells are going to begin to die within four to six minutes after the heart stops. So the goal, and why there's been big initiatives with late rescue or CPR dispatchers telling people that call 911, teaching them how to do CPR on the patient is to restore at least some circulation to the brain. So we're trying to prevent those brain cells from dying as quickly. Cardiac arrest patients are described as having suffered sudden death When the patient dies within one hour of the onset of the signs and symptoms. So sudden death, patient starts having chest pain. Within an hour, they're in cardiac arrest. That would be a sudden death. So are okay one minute, have a complaint, and then dead within an hour of that complaint
1: is, again, sudden death.
0: A common cause of cardiac arrest or what occurs when the patient goes into cardiac arrest is a cardiac dysrhythmia that's known as ventricular fibrillation or VFib. It's where there's still electrical activity in the heart and the ventricles, but it's not able to generate a pulse and the, basically the electrical activity is just going haywire through the heart. V-fib is treated with defibrillation. So getting a patient in fib onto our AEDs, uh, performing that shock is going to give the patient the best chance of survival while we're doing CPR at the same time. So pathophysiology of cardiac arrest. During cardiac arrest, the body is going through three phases. As the longer it goes, they start moving through these phases. That's going eventually left untreated corrected, it is going to lead to death in the patient. Those three phases include the electrical phase, the circulatory phase, and lastly comes the metabolic phase.
1: So the electrical
0: phase, this occurs within the first four minutes after the patient's heart stops. During this time, the heart still has oxygen and glucose stores inside that heart as well. They haven't been completely depleted yet. So it's during the electrical phase where we have the best chances of getting that patient back. If we find a patient, again, find them in cardiac arrest, begin the treatment within four minutes, early defibrillation within those first four minutes, Again, that's giving us the best chances of getting that patient back. Problem with that, the average response time for EMS units is is well over four minutes across the United States. So again, this is things like uh, defibrillators in public buildings. Again, community outreach to teach CPR is vital for patient survival. So since that heart already has plenty of oxygen, already has glucose, ATP, some metabolism is still occurring, it has ATP, the heart is prepared to respond to defibrillation. So again, within four minutes, that's what we want to accomplish. We want to defibrillate the patient as quickly as
1: possible. If it goes past that
0: four minutes, still haven't gained pulses back, now it's going to move into the circulatory phase. This is four to 10 minutes
1: after the cardiac arrest started.
0: Oxygen stores are exhausted. The, those heart muscles have already used up all that oxygen. Myocardial cells now have gone from aerobic to anaerobic metabolism. In this case, patient probably is not going to be in the... Fib anymore, they still could be, but CPR is definitely going to be needed in this case to get some oxygenated blood circulated to that heart to make that heart susceptible for defibrillation. So CPR is needed to restore supply of oxygen and glucose to enhance the po- possibility of successful defibrillation. And again, survivability rates are now dropping dramatically with every minute that passes by. <clears throat> So if it goes longer than four minutes, the longer they're now in cardiac arrest, the least likely it's going to be for us to get them back.
1: And lastly is that metabolic phase.
0: 10 minutes after cardiac arrest begins, heart muscle is now acidic and ischemic. It's not getting fresh oxygenated blood to it, and it's going to begin to die. And after that 10-minute mark, chances of resuscitation are going to be very unfavorable. So again, all that being said, starting CPR, early defibrillation is going to give our patients the best chance of survival. And again, the longer they go in cardiac arrest, the least likely we are going to be able to get them back. So there are some terms that we need to know related to out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, which is abbreviated OHCA. So things like downtime. It's the time from arrest to beginning CPR. How long was that patient in cardiac arrest until CPR began? Unless it was a witnessed arrest or somebody saw them go into cardiac arrest, we may not know the actual downtime. The total downtime is from the time they went into cardiac arrest until we get them to the ER. So, again, we're giving a report. They want to know what the, how long they've been down. They're probably asking the total downtime. How long
1: have they been in cardiac arrest?
0: ROSC or return of spontaneous circulation means the patient has regained a pulse on their own. Heart started beating again on its own. When we talk about a patient survival, that is survival to discharge from the hospital. So it doesn't count as a save or the patient survived if we get Ross and we deliver them to the hospital with Ross. That does not count as a survival. Again, survival means that they we got them back, got them to the hospital. And they were discharged from the hospital still alive. Witness cardiac arrest means us or a healthcare professional witnessed the patient go into cardiac arrest or somebody did. Unwitnessed cardiac arrest, patient is found in arrest, not sure how long they were in cardiac
1: arrest as well.
0: So withholding a resuscitation attempt. Again, not every single patient we find in cardiac arrest are we going to have to try to save. Sometimes they are beyond that point where we don't have to start CPR. Common occurrence reason or common reason why we don't have to do CPR on a patient is if they have a DNR. In Texas, the DNR uh, state accepts is the out-of-hospital do-not-resuscitate form It must be physically present, the form, or they have the state-approved bracelet or necklace as well. And again, there are big pushes, and this may have been talked about uh, that first day of class, with other forms like the pulsed forms, probably the most common, trying to make that the nationwide standard or do not resuscitate order. State of Texas requires that your protocols document and have some type of procedures dealing with dnrs so make sure that you once you get hired somewhere that you do understand your sops dealing with dnrs again the pulsed form that's not valid in texas now there are big exceptions and caveats to that as a general rule texas the their rules regulations jurisprudence only accepts the do not resuscitate out of hospital, the DNR form. However, your medical director can allow you to accept pulsed forms as well. So again, knowing your protocols is going to be important. A MULST form, very similar to a PULST, just a different form. Medical orders of life-sustaining treatment, again, your protocols may allow you to accept it. Other injuries, so they don't have a DNR, some other things, again, can be present that would prevent us or not, um, not require us to start CPR. So if they have injuries incompatible with life, so if they were involved in that major trauma, and there's obviously no chance of survival, we don't need to start resuscitation attempts. Self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head where their brains are splattered all over the wall. Is there any chance of saving that patient? No. So are we going to work that patient? No. Patient has their head decapitated. Don't have to work that patient. Neck is just totally destroyed, crushed, no rigidity or strength to it, obviously, or it's angulated in a way, or their head's twisted around to the back, whatever the case may be. It's unsurvivable. If they're in cardiac arrest, there's no point of working those patients. There's already signs of irreversible death as well. Dependent lividity.
1: Nathan, what is lividity or dependent lividity? I have no idea. Does anybody know?
0: It's when your heart stops, your capillaries are going to start leaking fluid. So dependent lividity is where that blood is starting to pull underneath the skin. So it's going to look like kind of like bruising or discolorization to that area of the skin. That typically takes about 15 minutes before we can actually see it. So if we see lividity, they've been down too long. We don't need to work that patient. Uh, They call it dependent because it is dependent on gravity. So if the patient was laying supine in cardiac arrest, we're going to see the lividity on their back. If they were laying prone and went into cardiac arrest and we see lividity, it's going to be on their anterior side. The other item of signs of irreversible death is going to be rigor mortis,' the stiffening of the joints. and that typically takes three hours before that becomes apparent. So one note, when we are assessing for a patient to see or determine if they have rigor mortis, in y'all's opinion, do you think it's going to be the large joints that show that rigor mortis or the stiffening of the joints, or is it going to be the smaller joints first? Somebody on it answered.
1: Smaller joints.
0: It's going to be the smaller joints for sure. So when we're checking rigor, we can check those elbows and those shoulders, but just know those are going to be one of the last ones that are going to start seizing up. So assess those fingers, try to bend the fingers. Oftentimes when we see rigor in the jaw as well, so if their jaw is stuck open or stuck and we can't open it, again, that may be an indication that rigor is starting to become apparent. If rigor is apparent, they're going to have libidity somewhere on the body as well. Again, if we see those, they've been down too long. We don't need to start CPR. So, again, know your protocols, know your SOPs about withholding or stopping resuscitation attempts as well. SPIMS region, again, those EMS services basically outside of Lubbock County. We can, the only way way we can stop CPR once we start it for most purposes is we got to get on the radio and contact med control and ask for orders to stop. UMC-EMS, they have standing protocols that after a certain amount of time, a certain criteria is met, they can go ahead and stop those resuscitation efforts. So, again, just know your protocols.
1: So, resuscitation cardiac arrests. This
0: is the old, the book that we're using is still to the 2015 standards. However, National Registry, the tests that y'all will be taking will be based on the 2020 standards and there hasn't been big differences between the 2015 and 2020 standards. So the chain of survival, success for resuscitation depends on a sequence of events. Pediatric chain is going to be
1: slightly different than that of an adult patient. Adult chain of survival
0: is immediate recognition, immediate high quality CPR, rapid DFib, if indicated, basic and advanced emergency medical services, and advanced life support and
1: uh, post-arrest care.
0: Pediatric prevention is gonna be a, a key step. And again, most pediatric cardiac arrests are going to be preventable. So again, community outreach, etc. cetera, is going to be very big for pediatrics. Early CPR, rapid activation of the EMS,
1: effective advanced life support. And again, integrated post-cardiac arrest care for the patient as well.
0: So again, depending on what is what rhythm they're in, defibrillation may be very important. And the only way to know what rhythm they're in is to put them on, for us at the basic level, is to put them on a defibrillator. So getting them on our AED is going, quickly, is going to be an important uh, step. So the rationale for early defibrillation. Most frequent initial rhythm in cardiac arrest is ventricular fibrillation or BFID. The most effective treatment for VFib is going to be defibrillation. And again, like we already uh, stated, the longer that patient goes in cardiac arrest, the least likely we are to get them back. So, again, the earlier we can get them on defibrillation, if it is, they are in VFib, defibrillate that heart, that the better chances we are of
1: going to have ROSC.
0: Successful defibrillation depends on effective CPR, limited interruptions in chest compressions. So when we are getting ready to defibrillate that patient, we have to try to maintain as much chest compressions as we can and minimizing the breaks in those chest compressions only when absolute necessary. So while that AED is working, we have to interrupt chest compressions. And without intervention, without defibrillation, et cetera, patient is going to move away from V fib. At some point, that V fib is going to denigrate into asystole. And asystole is, everybody I'm sure has seen health TV shows. Asystole is the flat line, or has heard of the flat line. So asystole means there is no electrical activity flowing through the heart. And despite what you see on medical TV shows, you do not defibrillate asystole. We do not shock asystole. It's not going to do anything. So if they're already into asystole, your AED is not going to allow you to shock it. So we want to catch it before it gets into asystole. So here's the difference between the two. And again, VFib is the most common initial rhythm in cardiac arrest. So we have all these pacemaker sites in the ventricles, and they're just firing off randomly, kind of going haywire. And an EKG reads electrical activity, not necessarily muscle movement or contractions. So all of these are firing randomly. The heart's not beating, but this is what we see on our heart monitor, just a bunch of squiggly lines. That's fib. Again, this is what this patient needs is defibrillation. has a pad up here pad down here, electricity is going to move through that pad, in turn move through that heart. And basically what we're trying to do is trying to get them to shut down and reset themselves. So we send that electrical activity through it. Hopefully we're overriding that electrical activity and causing their heart to start beating normally on its own. In this case this is a systole flat line and flat lines are very rarely truly completely flat. You're going to see some movement in it. But this is asystole. No electrical activity through that heart. And again, we do not shock asystole. So we want to catch the heart in here before it moves on to here.
1: So types of defibrillators with
0: EMS. We have manual defibrillators. Requires extensive training to use. So in EMS, it's paramedics that are trained in use of manual defibrillators and that's the vast majority or a lot of your paramedic education is dealing with heart monitors, uh, EKG recognition, etc. For advanced basic CMRs, lay rescuers, we're going to use AEDs or automated external defibrillators. They're much simpler to use and it's a computer that is recognizing and analyzing that rhythm, setting the defibrillation settings and everything. So there are different types of AEDs on the market, different manufacturers. The ones that we're used to that are by far the most common is what is, is commonly referred to as a uh, SAD. Let me back that up. It's technically referred to an SAED or semi-automated AED but we just call them AEDs. Those terms are used interchangeably. Within SAED, again, the machine does the vast majority of the work. The big difference is we, or the operator, is the one that actually has to push the button to shock the patient. So, and it's safer than the fully fully automated ones. We're the ones that are making the decision of when to actually shock. We can... Take the time to physically look up and down the patient and make sure nobody is touching that patient before we hit that button. Compare that to a fully automated. Once we turn that monitor on, it's doing everything by itself, again, including delivering the shock. So if we can't hear the monitor or we're not paying attention and it's ready to shock, it's going to go ahead and shock. And if we're touching that patient, we can get that electricity sent through us as well. So by far, most common is SAEDs, but again, just they're used interchangeably, we refer to them as AEDs. Again, several different manufacturers of these AEDs as well. All of the cardiac monitors, the, the manual ones out there, those companies do make AEDs as well. There's much more companies that make AEDs than manual defibrillators as well. So you just need to be familiar with whatever your service is carrying. Some of them, like this Zoll, does allow you to, and you can change the settings to where we can actually see the heart rhythm on the monitor as well. Again, yeah, some of them you can't. Doesn't really matter. We're kind of have to follow whatever the monitor tells us to do. The different pads, Every pad that I've ever seen is going to have pictures that show you exactly where those pads go. So make sure that we're following the pictures. This right here for adults is by far the most common placement, but you can also, especially for kiddos, their pediatric pads may have same placement or it may be anterior posterior placement on the front and back of the patient. Again, follow the pictures. Advantages of AEDs, speed of operation. Very, They tend to be very quick. That machine does a very good job of recognizing whether the rhythm is shockable or not. And they're safe. As long as we make sure the patient is clear before we hit that shock button, there's nothing really to worry about. They provide can provide more efficient monitoring of the patient as well. Most of these AEDs are going to have timers on it. Some of them may have metronomes that helps you keep up with your CPR. Uh, But with the AEDs, a lot of them are going to automatically reanalyze the heart rhythm every two minutes. So we don't have to consciously sit there and think about, well, how long has it been since we last analyzed the rhythm, last time we shocked the patient, etc.
1: So analysis of the
0: cardiac rhythms. When your monitor says analyzing heart rhythm... Do not touch the patient. Follow the instructions. Again, the monitor will tell you, do not touch the patient. No one should touch the patient during the AD rhythm analysis or shock delivery. If we're moving or touching the patient during the analysis,
1: we may get faulty readings. Again, movement
0: interferes with the rhythm analysis. And if we're touching the patient during the shock delivery, that electrical activity may get transmitted through us, and that can cause cardiac dysrhythmias in us or even potentially kill us. So, again, whoever is operating that AED, very vital that we make sure nobody is touching the patient when we hit that shock button. So, when to use and not to use the AED. If we put an AED on a patient, the patient needs to be in cardiac erects. We will not put the pads or the AED on a patient just in case they code. So they, if we're going to put them on, we now we can get it out and have it ready to go if we think he's about to code. But we do not put the pads on or put the patient on an AED until they are truly in cardiac erects. We can use AEDs in all age groups, adults, children, and infants, newly born. We can use AEDs if we need to. However, manual defibrillation is going to be, be preferred on infants, and the reason being is the defibrillation settings, the joule settings, are going to be based on patient's uh, weight. So, preferably, if a medic's on scene, you need to use a manual defibrillator. If a medic is not on scene and we have an AED, put the kiddo, the infant, on the AED. That electricity
1: is going to be better than no electricity.
0: A dose attenuating system is preferred for use in children, meaning there's something that changes the settings, the joule settings, the amount of electricity, changes it, drops it down for a pediatric patient. Now, depending on the manufacturer, it's going to be dependent on the dose attenuating system. There may be switches that you have to flip between adult and pediatric, et cetera. A lot of the newer ones, though, it's whatever pads are hooked up to the patient. If it's adult pads, it's going to give them the adult dose. If it's pediatric pads, the microchip recognizes that it's a pediatric pad and it switches the dosing down for you. But again, pediatric settings are recommended. However, if we do, say we have a six-year-old in cardiac arrest, all we have is the adult pads and we can't control the settings. Put the adult pads on the six-year-old and deliver the adult settings to the kiddo. Again, more electricity for kiddos are better than no electricity. We can use, if we have to, adult pads on an infant. It's not preferable, but again, their hearts are young and fresh. They should be able to handle that amount of electricity. So again, try to use the pads, the settings indicated for the patient. But if we, if all we have is adult pads and we have an infant, use the adult pads. Kiddos over the age of eight, we use the adult pads
1: anyway. So we again, we
0: can use... Adult pads on pediatrics or infants, we cannot use pediatric settings for an adult patient, though. If all we have is pediatric pads, pediatric settings, it's not worth it. It's not going to be enough electricity for an adult patient.
1: Okay. Any questions on anything that we covered so far?
0: Actually, before we do that, I did... Uh, just get word from our dean, Dr. Finley. Both of the main clinical sites, both UMC and Covenant, are no longer requiring a COVID vaccine in order to do clinicals at their site. So you do not need to worry about turning in a COVID a form or COVID vaccines, uh, the exemption form anymore. And you're not going to be required to have it or an exemption on file. All right, so continuing on CPR, this is the perfect layout for, for doing CPR, running your code, using an AED. may not be possible in all field situations, so alternative arrangements should be tried and practiced. tend to have two people that are going to switch back and forth doing CPR. One person is going to do IV access, push medications. One person is going to be in charge of airway. And then typically, whoever's running the code is the recorder, uh, is giving the directions, taking notes, writing down times, things along those lines as well. And every crew may do it a little bit differently as well. So AED applied to a pediatric patient. Again, they're using the PD pads, the pad position, again, just follow the pictures on pads on an infant. Again, the pads may want you to do it like we do for an adult, or they may be the anterior
1: posterior placement as well. So, recognizing and treating cardiac
0: arrests and we'll start with our scene size up. Oftentimes, we're going to get dispatched to either cardiac arrest or an unresponsive patient. Once we get on scene, we're going to start our primary assessment. Now, if how we do a primary assessment on a completely unresponsive patient may be just a touch different, depending on whether they're in cardiac arrest or not. If the patient appears unresponsive without signs of life, quickly check for breathing and a carotid pulse. Just like we we learned in CPR class, we do not want to assess for a pulse for longer than 10 seconds. While we're doing this assessment, if the patient's not breathing, does not have a pulse, we immediately start CPR following the CAB approach, chest compressions, airway, and breathing. So if they're in cardiac arrest, we do chest compressions first before we worry about airway, then
1: breathing. If they do have a
0: pulse, now we go back to more of our traditional primary assessment. Make sure that airway is open. Make sure they're breathing adequately. For infant
1: CPR, kiddo is less than one year of age. It's
0: going to be a little bit different. If a kid is less than one and their heart rate is less than 60 with signs of inadequate perfusion, and if a less than a one-year-old, if an infant has a pulse rate less than 60, they're going to have signs of inadequate perfusion. We're going to start chest compressions. Even though the kiddo, the baby, has a pulse, it's way too slow to be effective. So we're still going to provide chest compressions at that rate between 100 and 120. 110 kind of being our sweet spot, what we aim for. For infant CPR, our single rescue ratio is 30 to 2. If we have two rescuers, it's going to be 15 to 2. Using, when we're doing chest compressions, with two rushers, we have to use the two-thumb encircling technique. The depth of these chest compressions is one-third the depth of the chest, which is approximately half, one and a half
1: inches in depth.
0: Again, there is an example of that two-thumbs encircling technique where we're wrapping our hands around the infant with our thumbs on the sternum and giving the chest compressions that way.
1: That was an infant. Where do we check for a pulse at on a unresponsive infant? It's the
0: brachial artery. For a child, HA guidelines, a child is from the age of one to the onset of puberty. How do we know puberty? We look for the development of breasts in females uh, or underarm hair in males. Pulse rate is less than 60. Signs of inadequate perfusion, again, we're going to go ahead and start chest compressions even though their heart is beating. The rate, how fast we're going to do chest compressions is going to be the same for all age groups. It's going to be 100 to 120 per minute, with 110 kind of being the goal. Compression to ventilation ratios are the same for infants and children. So for by ourselves, it's 30 to 2. If we have two rescuers, it's going to be 15 to 2. Depth is still one-third the depth of a chest. For a child, though, it's going to be approximately two inches in depth. For a child, it is up to you whether you use one hand for CPR for chest compressions or two hands. It does not matter. It's your decision as long as you're getting adequate depth.
1: Adult, puberty
0: and up, rate is 100 to 120. So again, 110 is kind of what we're aiming for. Compression to ventilation ratio for an adult, it doesn't matter if it's one rescuer or two rescuers, the compression to ventilation ratio is the same, which is 30 to 2. And the depth
1: is one third the depth of a chest, at least two inches.
0: Doing a secondary assessment for cardiac arrest. Patients in cardiac arrest, we still need to get a history from family members or bystanders. We wanna know well, what's going on. Attempt to obtain the history from bystanders or relatives. While we're talking to family or relatives, bystanders, et cetera, though, we're still treating our patients. So do not interrupt chest compressions or delay defibrillation trying to get a history from the family members. General rule with CPR is we try to never interrupt chest compressions for longer than 10 seconds. So when we stop, reassess after two minutes, reassess for a pulse. Again, we try to limit those chest compressions for no longer than two minutes while we're giving the breaths, etc. Do not stop chest compressions for more than uh, 10 seconds, sorry. Some exceptions to that. Anytime there's a safety issue for us, Again, our safety is always the most important. So if we have to pause compressions to ensure safety, that's one thing. Using the AED, especially with analyzing the heart rhythm and charging of the heart rhythm, et cetera, that tends to take longer than 10 seconds. During that, it is okay to pause those compressions for longer than 10 seconds. Or if we have to move that patient where we can't perform adequate CPR, going downstairs, narrow hallways, et cetera. Again, we have to pause those compressions in order to get the patient
1: out. Our reassessment process, we're gonna reassess
0: for a pulse and breathing every two minutes of CPR. We're gonna to have to we reassess those every two minutes is when we're going to uh, let the heart ryth- the AED reanalyze the heart rhythm as well. And we need to be rotating compressors out at least every two minutes or at the max every two minutes. If the compressor is fatiguing before two minutes are up,
1: you can switch them out earlier than that.
0: If we ever get RoSC, the return of spontaneous circulation, we can stop CPR, but we need to ensure that we are monitoring the patient closely because it's very common that we get Ross back, get the heart beating again, and then a few seconds later or minutes later, they lose pulses again and go back into cardiac arrest. So if we do get ROS, continuous monitoring of that pulse and breathing is going to be vital. And if we do get ROS back we can also put them in that recovery position if they're breathing adequately on their own and we're not having to assist ventilations. vast majority of the time, if we get their heart beating again, they're still probably not going to be breathing adequately on their own. So we get false back. Next thing we do is we assess their breathing. If they're breathing adequately, put them on an honor breathing. If they're not breathing adequately, we're going to have to continue to ventilate
1: the patient. So using the
0: AD, ADs are extremely simple. What we're going to do is we're going to turn it on. From there, we're going to follow the instructions of the monitor. The monitor will tell you exactly what to do. We're going to attach the pads
1: to the patient, then attach the pads to the monitor.
0: It's going to analyze the heart rhythm. Again, while it's analyzing, we cannot be touching the patient. If the monitor says shock is advised, then we're going to shock the patient when the monitor is ready. When we're done defibrillating, we immediately go right back into
1: chest compressions. And again,
0: simply put, turn it on and follow the instructions. And remember, ADs are going to shock two rhythms, V-fib and VTAC. VFIB V-fib being the most common. Just if so if the patient is an asystole, the monitor is going to tell you no shock is advised. Just because the monitor tells you no shock advised does not mean that the patient does not need CPR. It's the presence or absence of the pulse that determines whether the patient needs chest compressions or not, not if shock is indicated or not. So even if the monitor says no shock is advised, if the patient does not have a pulse,
1: we are going to continue CPR.
0: So using an SAED, again, we're going to approach the patient. Patient's unresponsive. We're going to quickly check for a pulse and breathing simultaneously. If the patient is not breathing, no pulse, or has no pulse, has agonal respirations, we're going to immediately start CPR, starting with chest compressions. We're going to grab the AED, apply the AED while we're applying the AED, we should not interrupt chest compression. So this person applying the pads to the patient is gonna to have to work around the patient's, the, the medic's hands. So he's doing chest compression, she's putting on the pads, he's gonna continue compressions
1: while those pads are getting placed.
0: We're gonna, again, the first step though is to turn it on. Turn it on, it's gonna go through a self-check, turn it on, follow the instructions. Attach the pads. Again, if we're attaching the pads, That should not interfere with chest compressions. When the monitor is analyzing the rhythm, the monitor will tell you, do not touch the patient. At that time, everybody stand clear. If it does say shock is advised, again, we continue to make sure everybody's clear. Whoever is pushing the button is going to physically say clear and visually look up and down the patient to make sure nobody is touching the patient. Once the person operating the monitor is sure nobody is touching the patient, we're gonna hit the button to deliver the shock. After that shock is delivered, we immediately go right back into CPR starting with chest compressions. Do that for two minutes at the end of two minutes. Now we're going to reassess the patient, check for a pulse, check for breathing, no pulse, no breathing. We're gonna start CPR, use the AED again, If they do have a pulse at this point, we stop chest compressions. Now we are going to reanalyze or uh, check their breathing, determine if they need to be ventilated or not. And again, if the monitor says no shock is advised, patient still in cardiac arrest, we continue CPR on the patient. Every two minutes we'll reassess, we'll let the heart monitor reanalyze every two minutes even if it's now saying no shock is advised. Does that make sense? So two minutes, it says no shock is advised. We'll continue CPR for two minutes. Two minutes later, we're going to uh, analyze the heart rhythm again with the AED in case there is a change. Key points in AED,
1: follow the voice prompt instructions in the order that they are given.
0: If... The monitor that we're using is extremely old. I'm talking about 18, 20 years old. It may do stack shocks, three stack shocks right after another instead of just the one single defibrillation. Follow whatever the monitor tells you to do. If it's wanting to do three stack shocks, let it do three stack shocks. We do not touch the patient while the monitor is analyzing or during defibrillation. And if it's getting interference from movement, et cetera, the monitor is going to tell you. Uh, Motion detected, et cetera. Verify if that's the case. Look. Make sure that nobody is touching or moving the patient. If nobody is, then what the issue probably is is that your pads are not stuck firmly enough to the skin. So if nobody's touching the patient, nobody's moving the patient, run your hands back over those pads. Make sure those pads are firmly stuck to the chest. If we're en route to the hospital and we're still using the AD, the ambulance may have to be stopped, pulled over for the monitor to properly analyze the heart rhythm. Again, movement in the back of that moving truck may cause a uh, poor reading or it may tell you motion detected. So we may need to pull over. If something is going on or something is wrong with the AD. if it takes extended amounts of times to analyze or otherwise malfunctions, just go right back into chest compressions. And again, as I stated earlier, not all victims of cardiac arrest need defibrillation. If no shock is advised, patient does not have a
1: pulse, resume CPR.
0: It is high amounts of electricity with that AED, so we got to be cautious in water. We do not want to use the AED in standing water or other liquids. If the patient is completely soaked, get a towel or something and dry off the patient's chest before we apply those pads. If the patient has an internal pacemaker or defibrillator, we do not want to put those pads directly over that implanted defibrillator pacemaker. Most of the time though, those are inserted on the left side of the chest. We put the pads on the right side of the chest. So typically it's not a problem. Not every time though, chest must be clean and dry. If it's dirty, if it's wet, again, get a towel,
1: wipe off the chest. If the chest must be cleaned,
0: obviously we don't use a flammable product such as alcohol to cleanse the chest. If it's that dirty or we need a liquid, use sterile uh, sterile water, sterile saline or normal saline, whatever we have in the truck. It doesn't even have to be sterile water. Just use water or saline. Clothing of the upper chest has to be removed. So we're going to cut a patient's shirt or remove a shirt if we're performing chest compressions. Females that are wearing a bra, you need to remove the bra as well, especially if it's an underwire, has metal wires in the bra as well. For guys or females, if it may be, we have to remove excessive chest hair on the patient as well. Most AED kits or most ambulances will carry some type of dry razor in the trust that we can quickly shave a spot and apply the pad. If we don't have access to a dry razor, Another technique that we can use to clear hair is we're gonna put the pads on the chest in a proper placement, push them down firmly, and then we're gonna rip them off quickly to try to remove as much, pull as much chest hair out of the chest as we can, get you a new set of pads and put them in the exact same spot. So there's an example of an implanted pacemaker. Again, we do not wanna put the pads on a pacemaker or defibrillator, Again, most cases, those are implanted on the left side, so they're not going to get in our way. Some situations or some patients, though, may have implanted on the right side, and now we're going to have to work around it. And not only, adults are not the only patient population that can have pacemakers. Kiddos can have pacemakers as well. Use caution on defibrillating metal surfaces. Again, there's these possibilities, probably pretty slight, that electricity can can transmit through that metal surface. And if we're touching the metal surface, we may get shocked as well. If the patient has a transdermal medication patch, so it's a medication patch on the skin somewhere, uh, pain medication is pretty common that way. Nitro has a paste form as well. Uh, Just remove the patch wipe that area with a towel to remove all the excess medication, and then put on your pads. Again, we want to visually look up and down the patient. Make sure nobody is touching the patient before we hit the shock button.
1: And with these AEDs, maintenance is going to
0: be critical. Batteries should be checked according to manufacturer's recommendations. If it's a replaceable or rechargeable battery, make sure that we do have spare batteries for the AEDs as well. Your the pads, your AED pads do expire. So make sure that we're checking the expiration date. Make sure that they are in date. Uh, and again, chest compressions is going to be priority over even defibrillation. So we have we have to continuously provide chest compressions when we are not using that AED.
1: Cardiac arrest in a pregnant
0: patient, a pregnant patient in cardiac arrest who is at least 20 weeks of gestation or greater, it is necessary again to, uh, to place the patient in supine position, and we manually have to displace the uterus off of the vena cable when doing chest compressions. So pregnant patients over the 20th week gestation, we've talked about this, we do not want to lay them supine because the weight of the fetus is going to compress that inferior vena cava, which is going to drop preload, which is then going to reduce cardiac output, and in turn, it's going to drop blood pressure. The Last thing we want during cardiac arrest is reduce preload to the heart. So if we're having to do chest compressions on this pregnant patient, she has to be supine. So if that's the case, we're going to have to manually displace the uterus off of the vena cava. So how do we do that? We push it. Use one hand to push the uterus to the left. It's always going to be moved to the left. We want it moved to the left. Or we can have two hands pulling it to the left as well. But we have to keep the fetus off of that vena cava.
1: transporting a patient in cardiac arrest.
0: After emergency care procedures, operating the AED, if ALS is not responding to the scene, at some point we're gonna to have to make a transport decision. When do we transport? If at any time the patient regains their pulse, now our focus is gonna be, hey, let's get them moved, let's get them in the truck, let's get them around to the hospital. Other than that, it's gonna be when your protocol dictates you need to transport the patient. Your protocol may state after 2 uses of the AD whether shock was advised or not, after we analyze the rhythm two times, now we're going to transport the patient if they're still in cardiac arrest. Again, just follow your local
1: protocols.
0: While we're transporting, we have to if they're still in cardiac arrest, we have to continue CPR use of that AED throughout transport. Again, ultimately, it's going to boil down to know your local protocols. If we are defibrillating relating in the back of the truck, just be very cautious of that. It uh, may, may have to stop the ambulance for analysis of that heart rhythm. And with cardiac arrest, especially, we need to try to get ALS on scene with that patient as soon as we can. So request them early, see if they're available to respond. If we do get ROSC from a patient, again, now we're gonna start getting ready to transport the patient after we regain pulses. Again, provide oxygen and ventilation as needed. After we get a pulse back, now we're assessing breathing. Are they breathing adequately on their own? If they're not, we continue to ventilate. If they are breathing adequately on their own, go ahead and just throw them on a high-flow non-rebreather. Have suction ready to go. Again, CPR, chest compressions, ventilating them. We've kind of gotten air into the stomach. The uh, um, the stomach digestive system hasn't been getting good perfusion. All, both of those can induce vomiting on the patient, so just be prepared for it package the patient, transfer the patient to the ambulance. Again, we still need ALS backup. So if we haven't requested ALS backup yet, go ahead and request them. We're gonna keep the AED attached to the patient. We're not gonna remove the pads once we get ROS. Because again, we've already talked about, there's a good possibility it can go back into cardiac arrest. Form your secondary assessment on the patient
1: and reassessment is obviously the patient's unstable. So we're gonna reassess the patient every five minutes. Post-arrest care, so we get them
0: back. Some indications that ROSC have occurred on the patient. So things that we're on the lookout for. If we see these, it may be an indication that the patient has regained a pulse. Pulse is felt after the AED indicates no shock is advised. So when we reassess the patient, those two minutes we feel for a pulse, patient has a pulse. If the patient begins breathing spontaneously on their own, if they start breathing on their own again, they have to have a pulse.
1: Or if the patient begins to have
0: movement. Again, all of those are indication that the patient has regained pulses. Again, once we determine, hey, patient's pulse is back, next step is immediately to assess ventilations. Avoid oxygen, potential oxygen toxicity issues by keeping oxygen saturations between 94 and 99%. Again, if they're not breathing adequately, which is by far more the most likely situation, heart's beating, but they're still not breathing adequately, we're going to continue to ventilate them with the BVM.
1: Some newer technology
0: is automated chest compression devices. These are mechanical piston devices or belt compression belt type of devices that performs compressions for us. So we're not having to sit there and switch out uh, CPR every two minutes. Properly used, it can provide consistent chest compressions even during transport. And there's been studies that have proven manual chest compressions Once we load a patient in the back of the truck and begin transport, manual compressions are absolutely terrible. So uh, these machines can provide adequate, consistent chest compressions, regardless if we're on scene or we're in the back of that moving ambulance. Again, can have a low distributing band or vest or the piston driven. And if your service does have any of these devices, again, just make sure you are familiar with the device. There is the Zoll version of it, the auto pulse. Again, it has a small backward looking device. Put them on and we put that band on the patient. And then here is the controls for the device and the band will squeeze the patient's chest for us. This is a Lucas device. This is by uh, a different type. This is a piston driven device. So we put this on the patient. The piston goes over the chest. Controls up top, and the piston will do the chest compressions for it. So in summary, shock is a critical condition related to a decrease in vascular volume, vasodilation, poor cardiac, vascular volume, sorry, that's loss of fluids or blood, poor cardiac function, a weakened heart, or vessel disturbances, vasodilation. And again, shock results in a shift from aerobic to anaerobic metabolism. And our care and treatment for shock focuses on airway, ventilations, oxygenation, circulation, and rapid transport. And again, do not forget for shock victims to keep your patient warm.
1: Chain of survival for cardiac arrests includes immediate recognition and activation, early CPR, rapid defibrillation,
0: effective advanced treatment, advanced cardiac life support, and integrated post-cardiac arrest care.
1: Okay, any questions over